All right, good morning, everybody. I uh, hope you had a Merry Christmas. Uh, it's great to, to come back together after Christmas, spend some time with the, the biological family, and now come and be in with my, my spiritual family. Uh, it, today is going to be the last sermon of 2020. Okay, we, we've, we've talked about how it, it's, it's been a year. It's definitely been a year. Um, and, and today is the last sermon of that year, and we know that in next year, in 2021, that God is going to make all things new. Amen. And one a caveat I should probably say with that is that the circumstances around us might not get made new. But God is going to make all things new in, inside of us. Inside of us. That's, that really is the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. Guys, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter, I don't know the direction that the world is headed in, but I know the direction of, that the kingdom is headed in, and I know the vision that God has for his disciples. And so I hope that this message today can really prepare you, uh, and just, it's kind of, you know, the end of the year is kind of a time of reflection, time of looking to the future, maybe taking aim at something. I hope that today's message can really help you through that process. So what we're going to talk about today uh, is we're going to look closely at, uh, we're going to revisit the topic of the humanity of Jesus. It's something that I've been just amazed by in, in my studies in Matthew. Uh, and we're going to look specifically at the Garden of Gethsemane, his humanity there, the implications of Jesus' humanity. And there is no scene in the Bible which so clearly depicts the reality that Jesus, in addition to being fully God, also is fully human than in the garden. And because of the humanity of Jesus, his disciples can overcome any obstacle in their way of the life of the age to come. You can overcome any obstacle in your way of the life of the age come right here, right now. So I want to just clarify two quick things before we, before we dive right into the scripture. And that is what I mean by the life of the age to come. Because maybe we think of some different things. And the life of the age to come is, well it is what it sounds like, right? The, this, the, the future age, the age to come when Jesus is, is not only king of the heavens, but he's also king of the earth, because right now Satan is king of the earth. He rules the earth. But Jesus, the king of the universe, is breaking into Satan's earthly kingdom through the disciples, through the Holy Spirit. So it's breaking in, but there's going to come a time when it's, it's not just breaking in, it's going to take over the whole thing, the reign of Jesus. And so when Jesus uses the term eternal life, or when Jesus talks about another phrase that comes out of Jesus' mouth fairly often is the kingdom is at hand. Uh, eternal life isn't some life that just awaits us in the future. The word that Jesus uses in the Greek is ionios, ionios, which is past, present, and future tense. So eternal life, like John 17, 3, one of my favorite scriptures where Jesus says that eternal life is this, to know God the Father and his Son whom he sent. Right? He's talking about eternal life. 
to know the Father, to know him, it's, it's, it's happening right now. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God isn't something that's going to happen. It is happening right now. It's not a plan that was just put into, it wasn't just implemented. It's been going on and it's happening right now through Jesus, through his work. And so the life of the age to come is something, eternal life even, is something that we most definitely can have right now, that we can live right now. And that's one of Jesus' main messages, and is central to the, as I'm studying, it is central to the gospel. And also, too, when we talk about the humanity of Jesus, how is Jesus both fully God and fully human? Um, I'm going to give you a very short oversimplification of this, uh, just for, for the purposes of today's message, because we can't, I can't tackle all the intricacies of that and, and get to what we're going to be talking about. So, uh, Philippians chapter 2, I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but you can reference it later, study if you want to look. Essentially, how Jesus can be both fully God and fully man is that Philippians 2 teaches that Jesus, he essentially left, he left his throne in heaven, so he left his divinity, and he took on the nature of a man. That's what it says. So he takes on human nature. And so obviously Jesus still has a divine nature. If he's going to remain fully God, his divine nature doesn't just disappear. And so what Jesus did is that he gave control, so to speak, or access to his divine nature to the Father. He said, I'm going to go live as a man. I'm going to give it all up. I'm going to give all the privileges, everything that I have up as the Son of God to be a man and Father I'm, just as Jesus, the Son has always been subject to the Father. Always. Since the beginning. Before he even came here as a man. He said, in that same way, I'm going to give, I'm going to subject my divine nature to you. So the Father had control of when Jesus essentially accessed the divine nature. Okay, and we'll, and we'll I will elaborate a little bit on that in today's message. But that's sort of the premise for how can... Jesus be both fully God and fully man. So, the first thing today, guys, as we look at the garden, the first point is that peace that passes understanding. You can have peace that passes understanding. Let's read Matthew uh, 26, 36 through 46. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. He prayed, My father! If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, 
it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered to the hand of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. And we're also going to look at this passage as well, because this passage in Hebrews is clearly referencing the garden. It says, Hebrews 5, 7 through 8, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about these scriptures. You know, we needed a new word. We see Jesus. Just put yourself in the shoes of Jesus for a moment. Your, your death is imminent. And not only is it just death like you know that you're going to fall off a cliff, like you are going to be tortured. And it's going to be excruciating. You know, we actually needed a new word to describe what Jesus was about to go through. Excruciating. You know, that word didn't exist before the cross. The, the Latin, and I don't know, I'm not saying it correct in Latin, but in English it's ex crux, which means out of the cross. It's where we get excruciating. Out of the cross. That's the pain, the suffering that awaits Jesus. And the interesting thing about this is that Jesus prays. You know, Jesus didn't draw upon his divine nature. He didn't have this alternate Son of God way of communicating with the Father. He prayed. Just like you and I would in this situation. We don't hear an obvious answer from the Father either. Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow unto death. You know, no God should die, or would die. Death is the curse of man. Jesus is taking upon the primordial curse of man. You know, Jesus, why is he upset with the disciples? You know, I mean, you can, you can I don't know exactly how Jesus said it, but I, there's a sense there, that, like you couldn't stay awake for an hour. Jesus wants encouragement in his darkest hour. He's looking for encouragement from his brothers and sisters, just like we do. And God takes away the encouragement of others when the time comes when we must learn that he alone is enough. And maybe you've learned a thing or two about that this year, with people being taken out of our lives to some degree. Jesus says, Jesus says something incredibly wise, incredibly true. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. Now, is Jesus saying this because he's the perfectly composed Son of God, and in his omniscience, he's stating truth that surely the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing? Or is Jesus experiencing 
this truth. And he is feeling the weakness of the flesh. That's how he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And we see Jesus, right? The ultimate prayer of surrender. Not what I will, but what you will. Let it go. Give it up to God. Don't hold on to what you can't keep. Celsus, uh, a second century uh, Roman critic of Christianity, said this. He says, why does Jesus, in response to this passage, he says, why does Jesus shriek and lament and pray to escape the fear of coming destruction thus? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If Jesus lamented his coming death, he does not appear to be especially brave, much less divine. Those are harsh words about Jesus. But this man's thinking is very misguided, but there's actually great truth revealed in this. See, Celsus didn't have his Protestant evangelical Christian goggles on when he read the scriptures. And what he took away from this scene in the garden is that Jesus definitely is not divine and he's not even an impressive man. And you know, if you think about the climate, the, the times which Celsus would have said this, right? The Christians in the second century, would, they would have been, they were booming. And they were, they shone so bright in the Roman Empire because their lifestyle was, was so different. It was so radical. And so he's looking at Jesus. He's looking at these people and it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. How can these people worship this Guy who doesn't seem that great. How could they follow someone and worship so honorably, someone who is so strangely vulnerable, so prone to weakness, even afraid? It's because Jesus, as we know, is both fully God and fully human. You know, in this, this scene in the garden, Jesus wrestled in prayer. He wrestled in prayer and received peace that surpassed all understanding. In every scene following this prayer, this, I, this is one of my just favorite things about the gospel, is after this prayer, Jesus, he goes on trial before the Sanhedrin, he goes on trial before Herod. He goes on trial before Pilate. And he's beaten and he's hit and he's accused and he's spit at. And, and none of it even touches him. This prayer changed him. Prayer is what changed him. He acted with a dignity so far beyond Satan's reach. Guys, this, if this isn't a call, an encouragement to get on your knees and pray, I don't know what is. Because the kingdom of God awaits you in prayer. The life of the age to come awaits you in prayer. No man or woman is greater than their prayer life. Now, wait a second. Did God hear Jesus' prayer in the garden? Right? Jesus prayed, take this cup away. And God didn't. He didn't take it away. 
Well, of course God heard his prayer. I mean, that's what, that's what Hebrews said. God heard him because of his reverent submission. So what did God do in response to his prayer? He gave him the strength to conquer. What do you wish to avoid that God wished you to conquer in your life? You know, you, because of Jesus' example, because of his humanity, you can also have this type of dignity, this type of determination, this type of perseverance, no matter what is before you, no matter what the future holds. You know, I know, I, I know this to be true because we have, we have testimony and witness and uh, record upon record of tireless men and women who gave their lives and shed their blood for the gospel. And they stood with dignity and integrity. One example that I'll share with you, and many, some of you have probably heard of this man before, but his name is Polycarp. And in the year 155 AD, uh, he, was, he was going to be burned at the stake. For, he, he, was a, he was a preacher. He was for preaching Christ. He's going to be burned at the stake. And typically when you burn someone at the stake, you, you have the stake, and you kind of put all the fire flammable materials around it, and you tie them to the stake. And when Polycarp was going to endure this, right, he, he, could have, he could have said, I will renounce Christ and it won't happen. He didn't do that. He said, I'm not going to do it. He basically said, are you kidding me after everything that he's done for me? And then he said this. He said, don't even tie me to the stake. I will stand in the fire. He's a man. And he had that dignity and conviction to stand in the flames on his own volition. It's incredible. You can have peace that passes understanding in prayer and because of Jesus' human nature. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2. This is our second point for today. Jesus is able to help. He's able to help you do this. He's able to help you overcome. Let's read. But we, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I'm going I'm to kind of pause as we go through this. Jesus tasted death. Right? He... What that means, it means he experienced it. Like through and through, like some people, everyone dies, but not everyone tastes death. Right? Someone who, I don't know, maybe falls to their death, they, they taste death for about three seconds, and it's probably extremely scary. Right? But then there's someone like Jesus who, death was at his door for 48 hours. He experienced it. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that at no point, at no point did Jesus ever lose consciousness. So typically when you're battered and beaten and you're losing blood and you're dehydrated and you're losing, you eventually just pass out. But Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, he does something surprising. He cries out with a loud voice. Something he shouldn't have the strength to do at this point. 
And he cries out, Psalm 22, Why have you forsaken me, Father? Now, once again, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus stating, is he, is he quoting Psalm 22 because he's the Son of God and he's supposed to quote Scripture and be an encyclopedia for Scripture? Or is he experiencing what it feels like to be forsaken by God? Maybe you can relate. If you've ever been in that position where it's like, like the psalmist, like Stevie. God, where are you? Let's keep reading. And bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. He, made, wait, Jesus, he had to make Jesus perfect? What are you talking about? I thought Jesus was perfect. This isn't talking about Jesus' sin. Jesus never sinned. He didn't need to be made perfect in his sinlessness. It's talking about Jesus' character. His obedience. This is why a gospel of sin management falls short and isn't enough. Because right here, when we follow Jesus, Jesus had to be made perfect. His character had to be refined. He had never up to this point had to obey a command as serious and as difficult as this from the Father. In this gospel of sin management, I've seen what it produces. Right? This abstaining from moral evils. That is, that is kind of, that's being a little too overgeneralizing. Gen- that's kind of the American Christian, is to abstain from moral evils. That consumes so many others. And it's actually worse off because not only do not only does the American Christian not understand the gospel, they don't know that they're deceived. So it's a, they're doubly doomed. And the gospel of sin management produces this. It produces people who abstain from moral evils, make good decisions, work hard, but really, in reality, store up riches for themselves. Although not more than their neighbor or the person across the street, maybe. Because you've got to have some level of righteousness. But you know what it really looks like? It looks like, so often, it looks like the American dream. And we aren't supposed to become the American dream. We're supposed to become like Christ. If we are to follow in the steps of Jesus, we must become like him in this life. Eternal life. We're not, the whole point of this isn't to become like Jesus when you die and go to heaven. It's to become like Jesus right now. Let's keep reading. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I, the children God has given me. It's amazing. Because of Jesus' humanity, we get to be his brother. We get to be in his family, and he's not ashamed of us. 
And he's singing our praises. That's grace. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus broke the power of death. So once eternal life, maybe it was once this life that was reserved for the other side of death, Jesus broke the barrier between this life and the age to come. You can have eternal life here and now, and here's the proof that if Jesus were here today and he were in your shoes, there would be nothing that stopped him from being the Jesus that we know in the Scripture. He would live out every single one of his teachings in your shoes. He would live self-sacrificially in your shoes, just as he does in the Gospels. Broke the power of death. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Fully human in every way. You know, Jesus is also a priest. Jesus came to fulfill the role of a king, of a prophet, and a priest. And, you know, Jesus was not above the rules, so to speak. Why did Jesus' ministry start when he became 30 years old? Well, in order to serve as a priest in the temple of God, you had to be at least 30 years of age. Numbers, that's in Numbers 4.3. You can look it up. Jesus had to even abide by these, the rules that were set up for every other man. Jesus is able to help. That's what we see from these passages. He's a, because he himself suffered and he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So whatever stands in your way of the life of the age to come, if only I had a little more money, then I could be content. If only this pandemic would end, then I could be giving again. Then I could kind of get back into sharing my faith. I could get back to being devoted to the body. If only this pandemic would end. If only people in this church were more supportive and friendly to me and what I have going on. Then, you know, then I would invest fully. If only people in this church thought the way that I do politically, then we'd really get the kingdom rolling. If only I could be married. If only I could be single. If only I could have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. If only I wasn't so old and tired. If only I wasn't so young and need more freedom. He's able to help whatever stands in your way. Lastly, point number three, and this belief, take home with you. Your humanity is no obstacle to the kingdom of God. Acts 10.38 says this. This is Peter 
preaching in Acts 10.38. He says, You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. That sounds a lot like, okay, so Jesus has the Holy Spirit, and God is with him. Sounds a lot like you and I and how our ministries function. And to make a little, things a little more clear, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this. This is Jesus speaking to the apostles. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Power. The Holy Spirit. And what did Jesus say shortly before this? God will be with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, Luke is the author of Acts, and Luke is a physician. And so, and it's pretty obvious that Luke has a special attention to detail in his writings. He's surgical in his writing. And it's the exact same Greek that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Here, Acts chapter 1, to the apostles, and when Peter is talking about Jesus. The ministry of Jesus functioned primarily out of his human nature, with the power of the Holy Spirit and the fact that God was with him. That's the truth. Your humanity is in no way a hindrance to the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, your humanity is the very vessel that God delicately designed to bring about the kingdom. Because Jesus brought the kingdom. The reason we are afraid of this truth, this, this truth can strike fear in our hearts, whether we realize it or not, because for a few reasons. One, because it calls us higher. Secondly, because we are afraid to fall into the same trap that so much of the world has fallen into. And that is if we elevate this idea of humanity, of our humanity not being this obstacle, not being this hindrance to God, then we might worship ourselves. We might worship mankind. We might become self-obsessed. So it's really, it's honestly, it's really well-intentioned to avoid this truth. But here's how we appropriately balance and live it out. Humans are not meant to be worshipped. But we are meant to stand for something. Live for something greater than ourselves and transcend the life of any other creature on earth. The reason that mankind, that humanity, is so special is because we are the only creature on earth that can actively participate in the divine nature. And so Peter, who speaks here, who Jesus addressed in the garden personally about the flesh being weak and the spirit being willing, says this in his letter. Since his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Church, you have everything that you need to have a godly life. And you, can, you have the privilege of participating in the divine nature, the human condition 
The human condition is actually the condition that you can participate in the divine nature. And the reason why the human condition feels so heavy and unbearable at times is because when we don't, the guilt, the lack of purpose, the shame buries us. The real human condition is that you are privileged and that you can participate in the divine nature of God. Whatever obstacle is standing in your way to the life of the age to come, you can overcome here and now. Peace that passes understanding. Dignity. Perseverance that we see in Jesus. Your humanity is not a hindrance to God. I'll go ahead and close out with a short prayer, and then um, Tim will come on up for uh, contribute. Right? Contribute coming up? Okay. Cool. Um, Heavenly Father God, we pray, uh, we praise you, God. We praise you. We love you. God, we pray that in this coming year that we would devote ourselves to becoming like Jesus. Just as the same way that he's human in every way, we would become like him in every way, and we would root out anything in our lives that's not like him. And that we would believe that we can, that we can live, we can walk in the shoes of Jesus because of his humanity. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.